By the third year, I managed to get registered as an architect, and I'd also pretty well decided not to be an architect. Welcome back to Shaping Logics. On today's episode, we speak with Ted Smith. He is an architect, and he is also a developer. He's one of the early pioneers of the architect as developer model, where you design, build, and own your buildings. I find this approach to architecture compelling because it shifts the control of capital to the architect who then has the freedom to explore new forms of design, funding, and construction. I enjoyed hearing Ted comment on the current housing market and how his early go-home model could be updated to match current trends. Thank you for listening. Here's the episode. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Where I wanted to start off was if you could share with us some of your early influences and education and what was your sort of focus at the beginning of your career? Well, you know, I went to architecture school, right? Um, had fun in architecture school, thought architecture was a lot of fun, made a lot of cardboard models. And, uh, you know, got good feedback from the instructor and said, this is fun stuff. Then I went to San Diego. Well, this is 1971. So I was on my way to New Zealand uh, to leave America. you remember 1971 it was a different world and and we were basically looking for a new place and new zealand had surf and skiing Mm. and spoke english (laughs) they were going to give you um if you had a professional degree they would uh, pay for your trip over there if you promised to stay for two years so Mm. i was headed out figured i'd stop in san diego say goodbye to my mom and dad and i'd go to the other end of the earth (laughs) and let the Vietnam War continue without me. So um, that's basically what I was doing. I came to San Diego. Surf was really good. My brother was here and we're going like, well, this is pretty fun. I'll just stay a little bit. Next thing you know, I was in the back room of Tucker Sadler, Tucker Sadler Bennett at the time. And uh, there I was in the first year, I'm all excited drawing little buildings and all that kind of stuff. Second year, I realized the buildings I drew didn't end up looking like that and they got worse and worse. And by the third year, I managed to get registered as an architect. And I'd also pretty well decided not to be an architect. Um, I decided that, I know the back room was not what I thought it was. I wasn't Corbusier. I was some kind of flunky in the back drawing details for some horrible building that some corporate idiots were building that was ruining the world. (laughs) making building the sprawl and, you know, doing all the things that us hippies thought was wrong. So, so in 1973, after I got registered, I retired (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) and my brother had set up a kind of a scene down in El Salvador. So I, I um, went to El Salvador and lived there for about six months and surfed it up in, you know, La Libertad in three great point breaks there and pretty well surfed myself out. You'd go out all day long, you know, it would blow out it every day, but the morning was great. There was a few local surfers and, and there was a few pearl divers out there on inner tubes. And when the pearl divers left, you knew to get the hell out of the water because the sharks were there. And so we would just surf until the pearl divers left. And then, <laughs> and then we'd go back and get in a hammock and wait till the next morning. But about six months into it, there was all these bands of like, I don't know, 10 and 15, 15 year old um, 
army guys with, <laughs> with, with uh, you know, machine guns. Mm-hmm. And they were char- walking all around the place. And we were saying, we better get the hell out of here. Like they had grabbed some surfers and took them into the, uh, into the police station and shaved their hair, you know? So it was kind of like, oh, we better get the heck out of here. So we split. And of course, the uh, uh, war broke out right then in El Salvador. Wow. So we got out just in time, came back to San Diego, I had 300 bucks. And I said, well, shit, in, three, in El Salvador, that would last me another six months. <laughs> we, I think we had a house on the beach with a swimming pool that was $25 a month. And we ate lobster every day. The boats would come in off the pier. We'd go down there and eat lobster. It was great. So it, I would never probably would still be there, but it hadn't been for the, the war and all that. So anyway, came back here and here I am, got 300 bucks. And I said, what the heck, I'll go back to Sadler and see if I can get hired again. Mm-hmm. So I spent 300 bucks on a suit because he never liked the way I dressed. <laughs> and I went down and I said, hey, I'm back. <laughs> I got my gig back. And he, and he went, uh, well, you know, a little recession thing came along and we're not hiring. Sorry. So then I was like, shit, I'm out of money. And I'm back. And so then what happened? Um, I fooled around and got unemployment for a little while. I'm, I know I went to work for Lock Crane, which is horrible architects. And I just was at that point, I was going, I'm never going to be. This is the worst profession in the world. I hate it. I hate everything about what I'm doing. Um, but then I got a... Um, a little gig to do a, um, a little building through my parents. It was a little credit union building. It was about a thousand square feet. And uh, I got this gig and I was like, okay, well, I'll draw that building up. And next thing you know, I was, uh, got another job. And the next thing you know, I was, I was working as an architect for myself. And, it, and it basically what happened is I made a, a relationship with a real estate agent, Andy Nelson who went on to become a very successful realtor. And in the beginning, what he would do is he says, hey, I've got a young architect that'll do you some plans for free almost, and I'll sell you a lot, he'll draw you a house. So we, I started, got in that relationship and started drawing a lot of houses for the people that this young realtor sold uh, lots for in Delmar Terrace. And so we would get one or two of those a year. I remember we could get a permit in two weeks. We could, um, this is 1973, 74, about 74 by then. And uh, we could get a permit and you could get a permit in two to three weeks. And we were pissed off about that. It's like, how the hell can it take two to three weeks to get a permit? And, you know, so then the Coastal Commission was created. Oh my God, it went to seven weeks. I'm going, this is really crazy. And I got to raise my fees. I can't do plans for $750 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to charge $1,500, you know, holy cow. Well, anyway, I was still cheap at $1,500 an hour. I kept, kept getting a bunch more houses and I had a good time designing houses, some spec houses and some, uh, I did that for until 1980, probably. So I'd done a bunch of houses. I thought for a while, the only place I was allowed to practice was in Delmar Terrace. I don't know what happened, but somehow I, uh, Managed to get a little bit of money aside. You could buy a lot in Del Mar. And I bought, I bought a lot for $17,000 and, um, you know, borrowed a house and built a house. And after I built that house for myself, you know, whenever anybody drove up to Del Mar Terrace, they would pass that house. It was right at the top of Via Grimaldi. 
So everybody would drive by it. And then, you know, and next thing you know, I had a lot of gigs doing houses. So I did houses through the 80s up until, well, not through the 80s, up until the beginning of the 80s. And then this horrible recession happened. Um, interest rates went to 20%. And um, the whole uh, industry of building just stopped completely. There was nothing. There was no building going on at all. And it was just like, I, I remember... <laughs> I remember thinking the, the rest of the world didn't seem, wasn't like now where the whole economy's kind of crashed. It was just like only the architects and the contractors <laughs> and everybody else was seemed like they were fine. So I mean, I built this house and I couldn't make the mortgage payment anymore. So I uh, put it on the market and what I thought was a house worth some money ended up not being worth anything, sold it for the bank loan and got away with enough money to build a little box on a lot that I had bought with a, a loan against the house as I was going into um, bankruptcy in 1981. Yeah. I borrowed money against this little house that I couldn't make the mortgage payment on. And then that maybe last another six months. I managed to walk off with 10,000 bucks, lost the house for the loan. I sold the house for the cost of the loan, but I had a lot down the hill. And all of a sudden I had a lot with an eight, eight, $800 a month payment. And um, I had 10,000 bucks and I had a buddy guitar player, friend of mine, Peter Sprague, who um, said, Hey, can you build me a little box on your lot? I'll pay 400 bucks of your $800 mortgage. And here's 10,000 bucks. Can you build me a box? So I built him a little box for 10,000 bucks of material, 10,000 bucks of free labor. He started paying 400 bucks a month on the mortgage, which was 800. I had come out with 10,000 myself, built another little box. And that was the original development deal I did the, via Donata Go Homes. And so we had two little, two little boxes on the site. Um, my son was eight or nine by then and I was starting to think oh my god I'm gonna have to put him in college and I started thinking man every time I build these little boxes I make some money so next thing you know people started coming around and say I want one of those little boxes and I had I so I built six little boxes on that lot and after the first two paid the eight hundred dollars a month the next three seemed to just give me money <laughs> and it was money forever and I said aha here's the angle this is how you become an architect you don't you don't go out there and kiss ass and try to talk people into building good buildings as they tell you no over and over and everything's your fault and whatnot. And it's like, okay, well, as long as everything's my fault, why don't I just borrow the money instead of getting clients? And so that's when we started just building go homes. And basically the, what happened is all the young people all wanted to go home. So over the next, hmm. next through the eighties, we bought lots and built uh, 40 go homes um terrace all within three or four blocks of each other 40 six suite houses i mean six houses with with six suites so there were six suites in each house we did four five houses and so that's how there's 40 units it's really five single family houses anyway the angle was that you could make affordable housing that way and uh at the time i had a buddy in the zoning department and uh Joe Flynn, he was a zoning administrator and we'd kind of gotten to know each other in Ocean Beach where I'd worked with the Ocean Beach community group there where they had been so resistant to architecture. Anyway, he, he somehow I got him as a friend 
And he let me know that my little houses were legal because there'd been a, a Supreme Court decision in, in uh, the Roseburg court back in the very liberal court that said a family didn't have to be blood related. Used to be, had to be blood related. So it's like, well, mm. we had five people living in these houses and they weren't blood related. So this court case was exactly this. The zoning guy said, we're cool. What you're doing is fully legal. Just make sure that you can get to each of the bedroom suites from inside and there should be a shared kitchen. And the first ones, of course, had shared kitchens. And the years went by, I just started realizing that kitchen was a real problem. And you just give the kitchen to one of the people and everybody else can have a hot plate in their master bedroom. So that's sort of evolved into the go home bonus density. I get a, I get a big uh, laugh today when everybody's ruffling around with con- complete communities, the 50% bonus, the 100% bonus. And I go, this is, to me, that's uh, not nearly as good as a 500% bonus of a go home. You know, if I got the density <laughs> of one, I get a density of six. And, and the Supreme Court decision had said, you could have a density of 12. I'm actually working on a go home now at an Elfin Forest, which uh. is what we call rich man go home. And it's like a 18 bedrooms. <laughs> it's in ranch, you know, it's in like the really nicest neighborhood and it's like trees and forest all around. It's really great. But, it, but you know, it's on 40 acres, but it's oh. it, the performer totally kicks ass. The whole property only costs a million six. Anyway, so, um, and it's 40 acres with a creek and live oak groves and a farm and a well and a pond. And it's like, oh, okay, this is great. So anyway, we're doing a big giant go home there. Anyway, so that has been the central thesis of my development practice ever since you guys. And it's, it's kind, of, I'm kind of a one trick pony, basically. I can solve your density problem, just share units. So that's been, that's been kind of the basis of my um, career. And, and you know, we started doing go homes and um, then we did Woodbury University trying to teach everybody how to do go homes. Basically, that was the reason we founded the MRED program was to pass along this density bonus so that people could do infill and make money and make affordable housing, market rate affordable housing. So that's, that's the story in a nutshell. Um, I should mention that um, I hooked up with Kathy McCormick in 1981. And uh, she was also a builder. She, she had uh, bought a lot in La Jolla and had bought a, a house and moved it on a lot. Bought a house. I think her lot cost 20 grand in La Jolla in 1974. And she moved a house that had been on the site of La Jolla High School to that site. And so she had developed by doing a move on. And uh, so she was, um, she was cool. And we went on and did Ninth and Beach downtown together. And then I was a downtown developer all of a sudden. We actually got run out of Del Mar. I should, I could tell you that whole story, but it's kind of exciting because it involves a celebrity of today's press, Peter Navarro. You all right, remember, is the economic advisor for our dear past president. Peter Navarro was running for mayor, and he decided our go-homes in Del Mar were the poster child of Los Angelesation of San Diego, and that we were going to turn Del Mar Terrace into Naples. And he put all these flyers out in the neighborhood that our go-homes, which had been well-received and celebrated somewhat in the press, were going to blight on the neighborhood, and they were going to ruin, uh, ruin Del Mar. And he got, of course, the conservative people who were property rights people to, to say the go-homes were affordable housing in a very expensive neighborhood. And we don't like it. And, um, you know, it didn't matter that the community plan asked for it and all this other stuff. 
Um, Peter Navarro was there. So I was doing a slideshow to the uh, neighborhood group saying how cool go homes were, how they provided affordable housing, how they provided the buffer between the commercial and residential zones and all the good they were supposedly doing. Peter Navarro arrived with a gang of, of, of the same kind of people that raided the Capitol. They're standing in the back in standing in the back of uh, back of my my old slide presentation and started just howling at me and yelling and screaming and calling me a liar and shit. And I'm going like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and so I basically just stopped the slideshow in the middle of the slideshow, picked up my carousel and walked out and have never been to a community planning meeting again and never will. And I community planning, I'm sorry, it's, um, it's an extrapolation of democracy that's gone wild, frankly. Mm. Mike stepped and always gets so mad at me for saying this because he says all the rules and things that that happen happen for good reasons. They happen because people have these interests. And I'm going like, well, why in the world do we give these people so much say? And of course, the wonderful thing that has happened with the housing crisis in California is that we're now forcing community groups to get the hell out of the way. And I love it. And they are pushed out of the way. And frankly, it's the best thing that's ever happened. These density bonuses, although I think they're kind of meager and they're incredibly bureaucratic, um, are, are really a godsend. And we're going to create a lot of housing. The, ADA, the ADU unit uh, ordinances in themselves create this incredible density um, densification that's allowed in suburban condition, which is exactly what we have to do, is no more parcel maps to densify the existing suburban condition. And that's, uh, so that's been very, I would never have believed it in the 80s and 90s if someone had told me that we would overrun the, the community groups to provide affordable housing in their neighborhoods. I wouldn't have believed it in a million years. So things have gotten way better, um, which is a cool thing. And in, and in fact, there's all sorts of other ways to get bonus densities now. So um, it's, been, um, it's been fun to see the profession and the whole, uh, you know, scene push for housing now. It's, it's never been this way, you guys. It's like, oh my God, they'll bend over backwards to let you build housing. So it's, it's, it's terrific. So, so we're doing one now that's a 50% bonus density because I don't like the 100% with the, I don't know if you guys are wonks in this area, but the 100%, you don't get the uh, deviations and you don't get to break the zoning envelope. The 50% you do, the complete communities you do also. But the 50% bonus, and if you put the 50% bonus together with some go homes, you got, I don't know, whatever percent you want. This is an Elfin Forest? Yeah. Yeah. You Have you been out there? I've never been yeah. out there for a long time, but yeah. there's a funny little new urbanist town out there. Do you know what yep. I'm talking Yes, you I drive do. in all of a sudden you go wait this is a little new urbanist town mm -hmm. and there's a couple buildings that you know as much as i like architecture not to be historic there's one building in there that just says hey i'm the way a building was built back when there was pedestrian cities <laughs> <laughs> and somebody built one right there as yep. you drive in have you guys been out any rest of you been out to elfin forest the town is actually not called elfin forest it's called uh san alejo something or something like that. yeah yeah there's like a bunch of hiking trails uh, yes. Yeah. So this place that that my um, that P Cats has out there is this forty acre spot. Nice. Is is a uh, it's just like a little wilderness, and so it's, it's kind of the classic thing where you've got the sprawl, you've got the the tracks just 
pushing right up against his property. So he's the, he's the edge. Mm -hmm. So we, he could do a subdivision, right? <laughs> and, and he doesn't want to do a subdivision. He's cool. He says, I'm going to stop this sprawl right here. And we're going to stop it by figuring out a way to me to keep operating this farm out here. And so he's trying to figure out a way to subsidize operating a farm, which of course is not profitable. Um, 40 acres. It's probably there's only five acres of farmable, farmable land on it. So he needs a subsidy out there. And so the idea was, well, we'll get some people living out here. We'll make some affordable housing. We'll maintain the 40 acres as one parcel. We'll keep the farm. We'll save the valley. We'll save the Creek Valley. And uh, basically put uh, what we used to call in Del Mar Terrace is a buffer against the sprawl. If you're on the fringe, like we would always say, if you're on the edge of the commercial zone and uh, a sprawling situation, and like typically the commercial zone sprawls a bit into the residential zone. And so you'll get this big pushback from the residential people saying, you're diminishing my property values every yeah. time the commercial comes. What would happen is they'd start building apartment buildings the next tier back. So what we would always argue is say, no, we build a single family residence. We haven't allowed the zone to leapfrog over us. If you, if you up zone, say you're behind the commercial zone, you're, say you're on a strip street, commercial buildings, the next lot back is always the exciting spots, the interface between the commercial and residential. So those were all the go homes are located on that interface. And the idea was that, that um, once you built a single family residence there, you could no longer continue to encroach in the residential neighborhood with, this is what I'm, the lecture I'm giving to the community group with Peter Navarro screaming in the background. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and he's, he's saying there's no such economic theory that there's a depressed property value next to an encroaching zone. And of course there is. The residential houses next behind 7-Eleven, they're less valuable than the houses way up the hill because they're depressed because they're they're on the buffer right they're next to 7-Eleven same thing out in Elfin Forest the property that's next to the sprawling uh, scene out there is is uh, is the one that is depressed in value you know, in other words it can't be run as a farm very well anymore mm -hmm. right it's it's for the reasons too much of the acreage has already been parceled off so there's, the parcels aren't big enough. And so to keep a viable frontier or uh, rural edge to the sprawl, you have to figure out a, a way to have that property support itself. And so that's, that's what the go homes did by putting a single family house where there was trying to be up zones for apartments. And it's the same thing in Elfin Forest is putting a viable use on a property with, without doing the subdivision. So that's... We'll see. We'll see if we push ahead with that. But it's uh, it's, uh, so it's interesting from that regard. It's a fourteen bedroom house, you said. <laughs> well, no, it's maids' quarters, the butler's pantry, the um, <laughs> the spa, the uh, family room, uh, play area, the art studio, and of course you've got to have a. So it's really only a four bedroom house. Right, because aren't there limits to how many bedrooms you can technically have in a quote unquote single family home? There's no law. You can have a. There's no law. Okay. No. You can't have a law against rich people. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Figure it out. <laughs> There's no law against wealth. I know, right? Talk to Coronado about fighting on the ADU laws. Are you working in Coronado? Yeah, we we, we work in Coronado. They're, they're totally fighting back on the on the new zoning ordinance. Oh, they are. So, are they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're getting sued right now by multiple clients uh, oh. because of it. Yeah. 
They well, just think they're better than the lot. <laughs> yeah, we used to do lot splits in Coronado. Um, we did one on A, second and A, where we took a corner and split it in half and made two properties. That used to be the game in Coronado. Then they all got split. Now yeah. we now the ADUs are coming in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's a lo lovely place over there. And, and I again, there you go, man. The ADUs are just take them. You're going to have to have them yeah. plus the junior unit. And I'm sorry, mm -hmm. the single family zone, just 300% density bonus. Boom. The entire single family zone. California's like, wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> And so is, is, there a, huh? is there a certain demographic that you guys target? Uh, for example, San Alijo, I, I, I don't think affordable housing. I think more like a, like a Rich yuppie. No, yeah. yuppie but, well, so is Del Mar, right? Yeah, Del Mar, Coronado. So is yeah. Little Italy. So is Coronado. Yep. And so, you know, mm. I've often tried to make economics of go-homes work in neighborhoods that are not the high-end neighborhoods. They don't, uh -huh. it, doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, it, doesn't work right so it has to be a, a place where people want to live and again my market is very targeted and very singular it's young hip people period mm -hmm. and i could go further Devin, young hip artistic people <laughs> and the thing that i found good about that is i when i was doing spec houses back in del mar back in the 70s we realized that the houses were all designed to be sold Right. So everybody would design. So even the custom home would be like, well, I want three bedrooms and blah, blah, blah. And the, even the custom homes, they were figured out that they had to be. Um, the whole purpose was to build it, sell it and buy a build bigger house. That's what everybody wanted to do. They wanted to buy a bigger house. So the program for the house just got more and more and more just like a spec house, you know, master mm -hmm. bedroom suite, two bedrooms on a hall living, dining, family, kitchen, two-car garage, bingo. It's like a little ball of beads. You can twist it around any way you want. It's the same building, right? So everybody was building that building to sell. And the, the thing that I would often try to talk my clients into, I'm saying, look, you could have a bigger architectural budget. If you'd skip the living room, you never sit it in anyway. Let's make the family room really nice. And park your damn cars outside. What the hell are you going to build a house for your cars? For crying out loud, they, they got a they got a paint job on them that went through a, you know, it's good. It's good. It's good for ten years. <laughs> you, know, you don't need a house. This is not this is not uh, Washington D.C. where I would get up and scrape ice off the windows in the mornings. Anyway, so I try to talk people out and they go, well, we'd love to not have a living room and we'd love to spend more money and use concrete and blah 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 and make a wonderful house. But, you know, we really got to sell it in the future. And the person mm -hmm. we're selling it to is going to want that. So I was very dissatisfied with the market of who I was designing the houses for. I liked the yuppies. I mean, I was a yuppie, too. So I was, it was kind of like, OK. Uh, and, they, you know, there were a lot of uh, yuppies that lived in Del Mar in the 70s. UCSD teachers, um, surfers, rents were cheap. It was a different world. Through the 80s and 90s, it became pretty yuppified. But in the 70s, in the early, early time, it wasn't. So anyway, the thing I discovered when we were doing the go-homes is there were a bunch of young, hip people that wanted what architects want. Tall ceiling, nice materials. I don't care about the goddamn countertop in the kitchen. I care less, right? I don't care how big the closets are. So instead of designing a house that was about the kitchen counter and the closets, 
right? And the curb appeal, it was about what can I build for a buddy of mine who can pay $400 a month, has 10,000 bucks, wants to own his house. And what is, what, what would he like? And, and I kind of go, well, Peter Sprague, my first one client, he's a, he's a, a guitar guru, right? I mean, he sits there and practices guitar 10 hours a day. We did back in those days. He's just really good now. I don't know if he has to practice. <laughs> but anyway, he was, he was, he would just do that all day long. He just, and so I said, oh, we're going to build you a little box to sit in and practice. And that's all he wanted. You know, and I said, well, you know, we'll have a little loft You get your bed out of the way or shove it up on the top and you have a bathroom there. And then you, and that was, and he says, yeah, that's cool. That's all I want, you know? And then, so another was, Hey, what if it's just tall? And, what if it has a funny window? What if we make it, you know, just brutally uh, basic inside? No walls around the bathroom. We didn't put walls around the bathrooms. <laughs> we just, here's a picture, picture of 12 by uh, 20 foot room, 20 feet tall with a toilet in the corner. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what I was selling. And I'm kind of going, so who's my market? There are people that go like, that's cool. I like that. I'll go to Home Depot and I'll build myself a little cool fold away bathroom wall thing next weekend, right? Outside the deal. Whereas with a client, you're always saying you want to build whatever you're building right now because it's too hard to come back. With the market that I'm dealing with, young architects half the time, first thing they want to do is come back and build stuff and mess around in their in their their, yeah. their loft. So the whole idea was just to say, make a big room, make it legal, have an exterior entrance on it, a bathroom on it. I can rent it. It all adds up. So the first ones we did with cash that way, the later ones we did with bank loans, where we just basically named the rooms, living, dining room, kitchen, bedroom, one and two, master bedroom. Boom. And that there was a six-week go home. The living room had a powder room. The garage would typically have a utility laundry room, bathroom kind of thing. And so you basically could take that exact single family house and just change the names and go into a bank and say, this is a house. Period. And the thing that we would do is we'd show up with five partners and we'd buy the house. Um, the ones I did with uh, Robin Brisbois, Jim Brown, um, back in the early 80s, well, mid 80s, they were financed by banks. And you could look at the plan. And we, what we were always talking about is a chameleon. And also the last couple ones that we did were after the Peter Navarro event. So we started getting to something called stealth architecture. And that stealth architecture was, you can look at my plan. Tell me, is it a go home or is it a house? You can't tell me. There's no difference. And the thing that's been misunderstood often with the go homes and some of the MRED alumni even, is you don't go back and bootleg later. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of it is, is that it's fully legal if you leave the interconnections in, if you use hot plates in the master bedrooms, it's technically over the line, but there's not three attached cooking appliances. That's not a kitchen. So, you know, it's fully legal. And if you do it legally, it's just, just, so I would be, I would be telling everybody, right. I'd go to the press. Hey, look what I did. Look what I did. This is great. This is great. So it's not like the opposite of bootlegging. But what people have tended to do is go, I think I better go trick that kitchen out, put a big stove in it. And that bedroom door that went through a little lock to the other suite, I'm just going to drywall that in. Okay, well, at that point, you've cheated and you're bootlegging, right? Um, so there's a legal point. <laughs> this is a line you don't step over in my book that keeps this a viable alternative provide market rate of housing. If it 
we had a period uh, after that Peter Navarro event where the city tried to legislate go homes out of existence and were unable to do it. They tried and tried, but every time, this is the fun part, every time they tried to legislate something like you can't walk outdoors to a bedroom, the guy in Rancho Santa Fe would go, what do you mean I can't walk outside to a bedroom? Right? Yeah. Because they can do everything they want. And so they couldn't make a rule that you had to walk indoors even to a bedroom, even though the city sometimes held me to that. Because after a few years, I walk in, they go, here comes Mr. Go Home. And because I wouldn't come in, you know, originally I was doing, I started doing the stealth more for politics. Um, just because it was so unpopular with the, the Navarroites in Del Mar Terrace to be making affordable housing. So, but anyway, so it was kind of fun, just like the last one we call the Gone Home. And we call it the Gone Home because it's actually an eight suite go home that we sold. And what one of the arguments of the uh, Navarro gang was that your houses are diminishing our property values. So when we, Kathy and I moved downtown, we said, let's just sell the uh, what we now call the gone home, let's sell it as a single family residence. So here's an eight bathroom house that we just sold for more money than any house in Del Mar Terrace ever sold for. And um, so our argument was that you guys are wrong. <laughs> These houses are more valuable than the houses you live in. And we just showed you that with a proof that we just sold this house for more money than any house in Del Mar Terrace has ever sold for at the bottom of the hill, not even up on the top of the mountain. How did rental agreements work in these properties? Rental agreements, you have to have a single lease. And that's where the city attorney has come back and said, you have to have a sing single lease with multiple um, pages. So in other words, there'll be a lease for the entire house or the entire three units. Say you do two or three suite go homes, which is more typical in the apartment buildings than six. Then you have a three, a three names on the uh, rental agreement. There's a separate page for each person. And there's a paragraph that says, you're not really sharing anything, but you are sharing this lease. And by the way, your electricity is included. Uh -huh. So your, your rent includes the electricity. So you're not fighting over it. Yeah, you might be saying, hey man, you leave your lights on all night. <laughs> you're making our bill go up, but the whole bill is then paid by the whole group as one bill. So that's the downsides of go homes is you have to have the single electric bill. You have to have a single lease and that makes it completely legal. Well, people tend to not do that and mm -hmm. sub meter and do all sorts of things, but it's, it's, if you want to keep really above board, that's what you do. So essentially like having roommates. It's a roommate. Yeah. yeah. It's a roommate lease. And, um, but you're not yeah. sharing because the early house is all shared, right. shared kitchens. But the go-homes in the last 30 years don't share anything. They basically share um, the designation of unit A and they share the electric bill, but it's sort of in their rent. So they just never think about it and the water bill. And, you know, I've heard people are so tight with their rents and want to make so much money go, oh, you're giving money away with the electric bill and the water bill. And I can, no, I'm not. <laughs> I have a 500% bonus density. What are you talking about? You're, you're counting peanuts anyway so um so that, it's been a fun thing and I, I think i still it's funny how it just continues in my life you know 40 years later i'm still doing go homes and and it's because it was it's an angle it actually did produce something yeah Work, it was something man. that was real it's like so anyway that's kind of how my career went in it's uh it's 
I don't know how much longer I'll be able to do this, but I, I've got my new uh, <laughs> mega computer that'll, that'll put these, oh my, we've got the, of the Elephant Forest site. We've got uh, Patrick Cordell, a young architect who's working with me. He's got a drone uh, ability unlike anybody's and he can go out and fly that site. It's trees and everything. He flies under the trees, above the trees, around the trees, down in the creek. I have a topographic oh. model that shows the branches of the fucking trees. It's like, I mean, it's not just you look at it and go like, this is actually the real world. And the thing about it is, it's such a heavy model that I had to get a bigger computer. Because <laughs> I watched that little umbrella spin for too much time every day. It's just, oh, God, you're calculating again. Jesus. But anyway, so now I've got a mega machine and, uh, and I've got this incredible... Um, I just love doing SketchUp. I'll, I'll do SketchUp all day. It's just like, I, I, God, I can see what it used to take me forever to see. And, you know, and, and the problem is my damn client can see it too, or my partner. And I liked it better when I was the Mr. Mysterious and waved my hands and nobody knew what I was doing <laughs> but me. Now they, now they know where the fucking light switch is going to be. And I'm, I'm just like, oh, my God, I don't want that much involvement. Frankly, I have a whole story to tell about computers and everything that, <laughs> that I, could, I could go on to. But I, it starts with a story. Of, I, wanted, instead of, I wanted to ask about the MRED program. Oh, yeah. Like what, yeah, Brett, Brett what Farrow, made you decide to do that? What made me decide to and, do it? Yeah, like teach other people what you were doing. Well, I figured I was going to have an impact of 10 houses in my whole career. And if I wanted to try to have an impact on the state of urbanity, and if I thought mm -hmm. infill was one way an architect could have a, a bit of morality in this, in this world we live in, is to be working on densification is that's is that's the one thing you can argue that is socially responsible or responsible to the planet right is as an architect yeah you can use sustainable materials and make your building heat well in california that doesn't have a huge impact on anything what has an impact is get out of your fucking automobile right so densification is the way that you solve the problem in in uh, in california and uh, so in other words, that's, that was, I'm kind of going like, well, I can just keep it to myself, but you know, it's better to, it's more fun to teach it to other people. It's fun to the camaraderie of all the art, other architects in the program and all their own particular angles, like Jonathan's uh, incredible experiment with con concrete market rate mm -hmm. housing is a fucking amazing thing. He, nobody would ever have built all those buildings. And he's proven to the industry now that you can build that concrete building and sell it for more than the damn wooden one. And I, I think that's just fantastic. So there was that camaraderie with Jonathan. Jonathan built his first projects downtown the same time Kathy and I built Ninth and Beach. And so we met each other then. Kathy did a lot of work for Jonathan in the early years um, for some of his earlier projects. And, and so Jonathan and I were like, you know, this architect developer thing is it. And uh, Jonathan had already written his um, uh, seminars, and so I, I uh, recruited Jonathan to, to co-found MRED. And then we went out, and, and Sebastian Mariscal, at the time, we had worked for Jonathan. I don't know if you know Sebastian Mariscal, you guys, but he's yep. like one of the better, better architects the city's ever seen. Anyway, he was, he was doing spec houses and spec things, and so Sebastian was on the faculty, and uh, Brett Faro, who also worked for Jonathan, and then Lloyd Russell, who worked for me. And, um, you know, Mike Burnett was our first uh, graduate. 
<laughs> the initial class, his, his uh, MX project was his thesis. Right. And, and it was just kind of like, man, you mean this boom and you'll get somebody like Mike Burnett come out of there and boom and building stuff all over everywhere. And look at the impact Mike Burnett's had. And, and mm -hmm. if you think just the projects, like even when he's working with Fenton on that one on El Cajon Boulevard, that building is so much improved from where Fenton started. What, what Mike brought to that project, which is the parking schemes that we championed in MRED and a bunch of things where the over-under parking entered from both two ways instead of spiraling into the ground that that El Cajon Boulevard does and the incredible exterior circulation system that Mike's got going in that project. I, I just think that, you know, a big corporate thing like that is likely to be absolutely terrible, right? But Mike has made it good. And again, I, I used to always argue, oh, every big project in a way is corporate and I don't like it and I don't really want to live there. But in the same, so I like the little ones because you go like, yeah, I'd like to live there. But Mike, Mike has been incredible. And so that's the things that came out of the MRED, the MRED Aluminum Association, Pedro's, uh, um, incredible um, holding together of the of the um, MRED alumni and the visiting everybody's new project and everything. It's created a kind of a, a camaraderie in San Diego that I think is, is unique to our town. And I think it's, it's and also sharing everybody. You know, we're yeah. all competing for the same damn properties, but. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's really cool. I've been to a few of those like uh, open house things. Yeah. It's really, it's really great to see um, like, everybody's willing to share, you know, and now it's, it's not so much like a secret what you're doing. Yeah. Like you said that you are technically in sort of competition with, with each other, but it's almost like a, it's like a mentality of abundance instead of scarcity. There you go. That's exactly the way I look at it. And, and actually that's a unique thing about San Diego. If you compare San Diego and LA Back in the postmodern days when San Diego's um, postmodern scene was represented by Rob Quigley, Tom Grandona, uh, Randy Darrumple, and myself, we were kind of it. This was a small town in the 70s. <laughs> there was no postmodernism at all. But what happened is when, the, when the, uh, uh, somebody would come visit Rob, a New York journalist, mm. Rob would say, you need to go visit Tom and Ted and Randy. And so that journalist would come around and see all of us. And so we were kind of like a little team. And whenever a journalist would come see one of my projects, you got to go see Tom, Rob, <laughs> Rob and Randy's projects. And before long, that group grew a little bit. But we've always been supportive. And I, I've got lots of friends in L.A. And, and in L.A., it's a completely different scene. Everybody stabs everybody in the back. And it, it's just the way L.A. is. San Diego is like this weird scene. I remember I remember Rob one point writing a uh, some something writing and he used the word the clench fisted Los Angeles architectural uh, cadets or whatever. All right. It is it, the opposite of San Diego's surfers, you know, just the opposite of us. And, and we always like that. And we've always um, been disrespected by the LA architect main people, Syrac gang, mm -hmm. even though, um, <laughs> Even even though we've really enjoyed th their work so much through the years, because you know they're so damn good. Tom Maine, just yeah. sit there and go, holy cow, what a great architect! And you know Rotundi when he was with him, but and we were we'd go visit, hang out in their offices and stuff back in the early days. 
but the saying that you'd hear, and they had a, the same kind of thing. You'll see that picture of Frank Gehry and 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 yeah. uh, and them on the beach, you know, when they're all the yeah. young guys, and there they are, every one of them. More, I mean, uh, Moss and all of those guys were were rotundi and everybody on the beach as young men together, and it was that kind of that kind of scene of everybody supporting everybody that made made the scene work for them. And you know, down here in the end of the world in San Diego, it worked for us a little bit too. But it's it's uh, I think there's nothing better than to make a team of people and share your successes, share your knowledge, tell everybody what you think you learned, and then everybody learns something and you tell them. And then the cool thing is I get to call up everybody and go, how did you do that? What how did you what did oh, you did that? Ah. And you know, there's a million little nuances and tricks required and if you really want to have an impact it's not about trying to make more money than the other guy it's trying to have an impact on the built environment in san diego so the, the, the mred the mred's not around anymore right mred has ceased to exist um due to a change in um the presidency at woodbury uh, okay. a, few year, a few years ago they put a um a minimum class size on us We'd always we'd we'd had classes up to fourteen and fifteen and classes as small as five and six mm -hmm. and you don't know who's going to come right right so I would always handle the money end of, of the program basically I had to prepare a budget send it up and so I determined what all the salaries would be for and we'd have more instructors than teachers half the time so you can imagine that Woodbury was kind of going this is not our most profitable thing and I kept going it's not supposed to be profitable you guys are a nonprofit, mm -hmm. right and so I would send them the budget and you had to basically pay the salaries for the faculty and then send 40 percent extra up there to handle administration mm -hmm. you're kick into the scene and they would supposedly break even so that's how I'd done it for years and when we had a small class I would just get everybody hey we got a small class let's run it anyway you just you know, they don't want to get $10,000 for a studio. And you kind of go like, well, how about seven this year? And everybody go, fine, we don't care. And so that's how it always worked. And then the last few years, um, they made this rule. We had to have 10 or we aren't going to go. And we had a uh, class who had actually arrived in San Diego and were ready to go. It's class of six. Oh. And they said, we're not going to run the program. And so I'm on the phone with the president and telling them, well, these guys are already here. We run it with six through the years. It's been fine. You guys are still making your 40%. What's the deal? And he just said no. And then somehow he got forced into it by one of the students was an exchange student or something. And there was some kind of commitment anyway. So he had to do it. And uh, so he ran it with six that last year. And then the next year we had five people accepted and uh, they said, we're not going to run it. And so three of them, um, well, actually two of them had been accepted and one that just heard about it um, did what, what I'm hoping to continue is the intern program at the Red Office, which is a new version of MRED, which is different. Um, and we ran it for only half the year last year and then COVID hit us. So we just quit because there was nobody in the office. But what it was a it was different in MRED in that instead of the students uh, getting a class site and everybody doing a design on that site, we have the, the interns um, work on the projects the Red Office is working on, 
And you get basically the same knowledge, but you're not doing your own project. You're working on a project that, that I'm doing or Kathy's doing. So it's, um, it's different. We only ran it a half year. It worked out really good too. I started being able to do some academic stuff because I wanted to make some movies about some cost estimating ways we do and stuff. And so they started making those and the interns also made the BOPA movie that we had on the website and used for the San Diego Foundation a tour a year ago, but it was, it was, um, they've been wonderful in what they would provide back to me. And we got to the point where we were getting to the exercise part of MRED, where you just do a lot of projects and just learn to turn that damn perform out quick. And we had to stop. So um, they got kind of a half a deal. The cool thing about the intern program, of course, it's free. <laughs> All you got to do is do some work for me and, mm -hmm. Just trade and blink it away, but it's it's uh, it's doesn't cost the money of the MRED program. But you don't get what you got at MRED. You don't get the ten different opinions from the you know what I consider what really good architect developers in town. You don't get the credential at the end. You don't get some of the more formal class structure that you would get uh, in the MRED program. But then you also don't get the tuition bill. So it's it's a trade off. I think the same knowledge is passed frankly. Uh, but I felt bad last year and that we didn't complete it. So we got kind of got halfway up. We made an incredible set of blocks to get ready to work on a project where we're going to, you know, throw them in 10 different directions and then do 10 performers and compare them and figure out which one is kicking. What's a, what's a commitment for people who join that? Like, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta make a living somehow. So it's you, part time, like part time. I think. Yeah, you, you got to kind of have a gig going at the same time. Both um, Jose and Robert, well, Robert didn't have any other work, but he was planning on going to MRED. So he's going, well, I'm not spending 40,000 bucks. So I've got that money. And then he had, he had the, um, he had some, some photography work he did on the side mm -hmm. and all, but the way we run it is it's 20 hours. Okay. So, you know, it's 20 hours of, of that and, and half, you know, a bunch of it becomes instruction in a way because you're kind of saying, okay, well, here's how you do a perform on, here's how you do a cost estimate and let's look at the zoning ordinance together, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the same, it's the same knowledge. Oh, and by the way, here's Ted's 500% density bonus, which is what I'm out to teach, right? That's what I'm bringing. Jonathan is bringing the, the ability to make a, an amazing project and make it make tons of money and know when to sell and everything. A guy's a genius. And you don't get that in the intern program, but we do trade back and forth. Uh, we'd worked out with Jonathan that we were going to do reviews of his projects. He was going to have some of the interns in his office. We we're going to switch them back and forth. Mm. And Mike, Mike might do that also. Depends if we get mm -hmm. enough students. But the idea would be that it's hard to figure out. It's like, because it kind of has to match with when you have the work. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to have it be immersive, you're not inventing a project saying, go do this. You're, you're basically saying, we've got this in the office. I need you to do a cost estimate. Let's do this. So you have to have the work. And so I've been thinking that it might turn out that it's um, not necessarily a yearly thing. It might be a per job commitment kind of a thing where you'd say, come work for me for the duration of this job. And, and uh, you'll pick up the MRED knowledge that way. Um, I see. So that's, that's what I'm hoping to get it going again, maybe in September. I've got a few inquiries. And um, again, it's just, I wanna make sure I have substance because 
if it just becomes educational where I'm just going in and doing classes, it's, mm-hmm. there's nothing coming back to me that way. So it's sort of. So how much uh, responsibility are you putting on these interns or, you know, students? Um, are, are, are they in charge of say, like going to the city themselves and like, well, rep- this is just it. This is just it. We never had to go to the city on anything. Uh-huh. We've again, we only ran this program for five months so far and then uh-huh. stopped. And what we had in the office at the time is I wanted to make a movie about widgets and shell cost estimating. So I said, let's do cost estimating. And so we did went through basically the cost estimating program. And I said, well, I want you to make a movie about this. So they actually started to put together the movie for this. The other thing we did for contracts, typically at MRED, we have something that's uh, it's about contract and partnership negotiations. And so what we did instead is we invented the employment agreement uh, at the very beginning of the intern program where we sat down and said, okay, what do you expect? And what do you think you're going to get from me? And what am I going to get from you? And how much are you going to work? And we wrote a contract. And I think that it's, it's malleable with the student that you're, or the intern you're talking with. So you get, you get to negotiate a contract. I remember in MRED always, it was how do you negotiate a, um, a contract when you don't have any any position. In other words, if you, what we would always do with the students and say is, gotta go talk to Uncle Bob or somebody, try to talk him into being your investor. Now try to negotiate a contract with somebody who's real because you can't invent the situation. (laughs) As much as we've tried through the years to say, how do you negotiate a contract? Here's a boilerplate contract. Here's a boilerplate LLC. Well, fine, you can get those off the internet, right? But when you but when you look at the thing, you have to go like, well, what is this clause really talking about? And how does it impact me? And how does it impact the person I'm talking with? And how do I need to push back and forth on it? So the uh, employment um, agreement that we did in the interim program initially, I think was really, really good. Then we, after we did the cost estimating exercise, I was trying to get some landowner across from Mabopa, Arriva Derchi, who came to us and said, hey, I want to build a tower on my little site. And I went, damn, yes, you do. You've got a high, no height limit across the street there. Yeah. And so, so the interns were doing cost estimating as I was trying to talk that guy into knocking Arriva Derchi down and building a tower there. And so we were, did a whole, had a whole lot of fun, you know, trying to get Jonathan, Jonathan, what's your concrete numbers? What's your numbers? And try to get numbers from everybody and put it into a thing and then go back to this one guy and try to talk him into doing the gig. Ended up, he just did a two bet, a two unit addition to the top of his restaurant instead. But that's, and I just gave that to Patrick. Patrick, you do that. I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not interested in that. But, but, but while we were trying to get him excited about doing this tower on the site, the interns were doing the cost estimating and they were doing the modeling of the building. Because I was kind of going, look, let's just design something and, and we'll do it in class. And so we designed this 20-story building on a, on a postage stamp. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably we were fighting to make the performer work and uh, I didn't I felt like I was making too big a promise to this guy so we he, his tendency was just to do the two units and I went like well, let's not stick our neck out get him in trouble and I because I don't know enough about that building and Jonathan is still just learning about that building so it's it's a little a little too much that way. But um, so after that, we again, we were getting ready to do the one in the barrio. I sold my property in Barrio Logan to uh, Jeff Sivak. Oh, yeah. and, and Jeff and I are going to work on the building together there. So I would have, we have a big mall in the office because I've had that site for 14 years or something. And Where so is I, it? 
Uh, it's the very climax of Logan Avenue, 26th and Logan. Okay. Anyway, it's a beautiful site. Lloyd Russell, Teddy Cruz, and I owned it for 14 years. Wow. And we never had, we actually bought nine properties. The group we put together, we were going to build Woodbury University before Todd and Kath remodeled that building. And so we had um, had many meetings with the past president, not the later one, but the earlier one. She was all into it. And so we'd assembled nine architects. That was uh, Rob Quigley, Tom Grandona, myself, Lloyd Russell, Teddy Cruz, Todd and Catherine, um, Robin Brisbois, Hector Press. And we put money together. We bought nine lots on Logan Avenue with the intention to build studios with housing above them. And one would be the Quigley Studio, the Smith Studio. And we basically have an architecture uh, program, the campus of which would have been Logan Avenue. So we were really excited about that because we had, you know, where Hector's building with Kina is. And we had the vacant lots next to that are Joe Cordell's and Robin Brisbois. I didn't mention Joe before. And then the lots that Teddy uh, Lloyd and I had on the end. And then across the street from that, there were Catherine's, uh, Rob Quigley's and, uh, and Tom Grandona's properties. So we got the nine architects together. We bought all the property. Then the president was removed from the head of the school or whatever, or was kind of re- retired or something. And this new guy came in. And there was actually a second new guy before this other new guy. And they killed it after we bought the property. So now we all owned all this property together. And so we said, well, we'll just, everybody has split it up. We'll all own our own piece. So everybody got a piece except Teddy Lloyd and I, because ours was too small. It required a street closure to get big enough to split into three. So the three of us were partners for 14 years. And of course, Teddy was nowhere to be seen. <laughs> As he's out doing it, you know, solving the international problems of a, <laughs> of everything across the world as he is fantastic yeah. architect and and uh and originally it talked me into um building the campus too because teddy was at woodbury in those days and so it was it was uh so teddy is kind of gone lloyd all of a sudden had these big projects he didn't have time to deal with it we had cleanup on it a street closure a whole bunch of stuff on that site and I just let it sit because we had a tenant. It was making $3,000 a year. And I'm figuring, what the hell, I'll keep it forever. So after I built this hotel recently, just in time to open for the uh, COVID pandemic, (laughs) (laughs) not the best timing on hotel building, um, I sold a lot. And and the other reason is Teddy and his wife were splitting up and she wanted her piece and I couldn't buy her out, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we sold the property so that I'd have some cash to hang on to the hotel, which thank God I did, frankly, but, but sold it to, you know, had a bunch of different people to buy it. And Jeff was like, okay, Jeff, you, you got your buddy to buy it, but um, we're going to break it into two buildings. I'm going to design one of them. That's the sale deal. So that's where we are now. And we're working on a building there, uh, not in collaboration, but hopefully two, two separate buildings on the site for his client. Is this a residential or like a mixed use? Well, we're going through all the bonus density games right now. And of course the developer who bought it says, oh, we're going to do hundred percent bonus density, of course. (laughs) (laughs) But everybody says they're going to do. And so Jeff designed him a building that I kept looking at and going like, that doesn't work, Jeff. It's just all circulation. It's too skinny. And it's like, oh my God, it's not going to work. And he says, well, 
we're not developers on this deal. The other guy is. And he told me X number of bedrooms, X number of things I'm going to do just like an architect normally does. And boom, there's a building. Sure enough, they bid it and it didn't work. So, um, so now the owners kind of come back to me and said, okay, what I hear you got some games you can play. And I said, yeah, let me show you the go homes. <laughs> and now the guy I sold it to is, is got, uh, is got lining me up now to try to build well, I don't know if you guys know the buildings that Kathy and I did on First Avenue and University behind, uh, yeah. behind Panda Express. Yeah. Well, those, are, those are double duplexes, right? So that's a duplex, four-story building with a single exit. So the, the trick on that, on that game is it's a duplex. Of course, it's a go-home duplex. So it's eight units with one staircase, four stories, which you can do because it's R2. And so that was... The, the big intellectual game that was being played on that project was that we call it the double duplex. It was 13 units, which were typically technically four units in the duplex configuration, each one staircase. So we, Spencer saw that the guy that bought the barrio and, and, and I said, well, look, and so I of course got my sketch up thing. I go grab seven of those buildings and plop them on the barrio site real quick and say, look, I cannot do your performance in 10 seconds. And he's going like, really? And so right now I just sent him yesterday, I sent him the working drawings for the First Avenue building. And he's having his contractor bid it to find out what it costs to build it. It's all concrete, that buildings. They're concrete floors and wall and masonry walls. And I said, I don't know how much they built for because I did them for a client. And it's a long story, but the client didn't want to share their construction costs information so i never knew what it cost so right now it's really cool that spencer is got those plans from 2016 and uh, is bidding them so i'm going to know what it costs and then he's saying and if it works out we'll we'll pop seven of those on the barrio site and i'm going yes you will and jeff can do three three of them and i'll do kathy will do two and i'll do two <laughs> And so we'll have we'll have we'll have a bunch of little duplexes all over the site. But he's going, I don't know yet. There's a lot I got to learn about this. So, but meanwhile, he's doing a cost estimate off of our working drawings, which is great news because I've always wondered what that one cost, because right? I don't know. Hmm. You know, seemed like it shouldn't have cost much, but probably did. <laughs> that's, <laughs> probably cost, that's, yeah. that's really interesting that that's a duplex, and I, I I didn't even cross my it didn't cross my mind. Uh, you're building them first because I've seen it. And like, how does that work with, um, you know, same like rentals? Is, are, are people just willing to share? Electric they're not sharing, they they're not sharing anything. These are the modern go homes. So, okay. So say, so there's two, let's say, look at the, uh, the eight unit duplex, uh -huh. the one in the back, the 60 foot one, it's, it's four 15 foot floors, right? Uh -huh. So your FAR is 15 floor to floor before it counts twice. So we said 60 feet, 15, 15, 15, 15. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that building wants to be four 15-foot stories. Yeah. Four stories was as tall as you could go on the duplex staircase. So we go, okay, so how does it work? So you walk in, the, the ground floor is a garage. The garage has a laundry room in it and a bathroom. There's nothing that says you can have a bathroom and a laundry room in a garage. Mm -hmm. So there's a unit. Then you go up one stair and you land on a landing on level two. And on that landing, there is uh, the staircase is going to continue up. But you come out of the staircase onto a balcony that faces uh, the parking lot there. And from that balcony, you can walk into the, the three-suite go-home that's on the second floor. 
Uh, you walk into the living room in the middle, the two bedrooms are the side, but you could have walked down the outside and gone in the sliding glass doors off the balconies okay. and gone into the other two. So you got three there, right? And then the stair continues. You go, then you go right into a doorway into a two-story unit. As you go into the unit, you go into a stairway, right? Front door to the unit. You go into the stair. And on the way around the stair, you find three bedrooms. Keep up the stair to the living, dining room, kitchen. So there's four units, right, on that staircase. So there's, yeah. there's the eight units that's, that's two that's right. fully legal. And, um, and of course, the parking is reduced and all that. Mm -hmm. So that's how that one works. Kathy's in the front is much more complicated because Kathy gets into nuances. Hers goes up and down and jogs in and out and stairs fly all over <laughs> everywhere. And all the cabinets are cool inside because she starts with a plan, you know. I start with a section. I can do four 15s. I get a lot of units. <laughs> Kathy's like, oh, I'm going to nuance up, and I'm going to turn left, and I'm going to have a little room and a tall room and all that. Anyway, so hers is, hers is much more complicated, much more intricate, and actually beautiful inside. Mine, mine, yeah. are, raw. mine are pretty raw. That's <laughs> always the difference between she and I. The building we did up on Ninth Avenue when we first came downtown, Ninth and Beach, um, the way Kathy and I work together is we just slice it into two projects or else we won't still be lovers anymore, right? <laughs> so, so basically, she said, you do from there over and I'll do from here over. So we just slice the building in half, in that case, the Ninth and Beach building. And she did the white part and I did the asphalt shingle part. Mm. One thing that I wanted to ask about or that's kind of off topic, but it's important, I think, in your in all of your work, or it's like the concept of sweat equity. Can you talk about that? Like, can you describe it and how, how it's used? Well, sweat equity is, is um, work for ownership instead of work for money, right? Hmm. So you're going to develop equity ownership in the building by providing free labor. So, um, I won't get into the complicated nature of the red office, which was a yeah. collaboration between a lot of projects where we all worked on all of them and all owned everything, right? To the typical sweat equity thing like Lloyd and I would do years before, where we just get up in the morning, we'd show up in the office and we'd work till five o'clock and we both do that together. And by the end of the deal, we'd both put in the same amount of time and then raise some capital. And then we would just own the building based on our time and Lloyd and I, since we just always work together, it's always 50, 50, you get half, I get half. And that's always been the funny. I'm also a communist, you guys, uh, even though I believe, I also believe communism is a failed system, of course, but, but, and I've learned all about it actually at the red office of why it fails. <laughs> 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 but when it was just me and Lloyd or me and Robin Brisboy or me and Jim Brown or me and whoever, we're just partners and we just worked together all day and every day we didn't keep hours. We didn't do anything. We just got up and worked. We both all worked and we got done. We just said, you get a third, I get a third, I get a third, or you get a half, I get a half, whatever. So that's, that's how the sweat equity would work. And we would just keep time in the red office. We would just, we, which started in uh, 2014 um, with Kate Mears, who was an MRED graduate who said, I know some guys since I've done high rises, you know, I used to work for Perkins for years. I know some REITs and I, so I said, let's try to put together a deal for your thesis 
where we'll build a tower with one of you REITs, you know, right? Since you know these guys. So we designed, a, I don't know if you know where Harbor, Harbor Breakfast is, but um, at India Street and uh, Beach, there's a parking lot there. Most one of the more valuable pieces of property in the city is 100 by 100. So anyway, we designed a tower on that site. And of course, it, the REIT didn't build it. <laughs> it was based on the cross section we eventually built at Amopa. But it was, it, it, they wouldn't build it. But we said, okay, we both put in some time. We both own half of something. Let's go try to do something else. And then we started just keeping track of hours. And then Hector uh, Perez had a, had a client, um, Alex Alemany, who had come to him and saw the uh, La Esquina project. And Hector's gone, I'm teaching full time. I don't have time to do this. Maybe we'll do that in the red office. So I invited Hector into the red office. And we did Los Patios, which Hector designed. And it's... Uh, and we all just kept track of hours. So I'd be working on Hillcrest, he'd working on Los Patios. And then we, you know, worked through the time and Los Patios took five years, still didn't have a permit. And Abopa was finished and in the middle of a pandemic. And it was just like, you know, it's time to, time to just take, split our assets up. So we took all our sweat equity, everybody added up all our hours for the six years. And that determined the two assets we had were Los Patios and uh, actually Ohio Street, which Hector still has, and and um, and Hillcrest or Abopa, the hotel. And we just said, okay, you own X number of the whole company. The value of these two buildings, look, they're almost the same. We could basically say those guys own that one and these guys own this one. So we just split it and uh, Hector and Kate and uh, Jake and Alejandro, uh, took their red office shares and ended up owning 40% of Los Patios. Whereas I took uh, Joe, Kathy, and Patrick Cordell out of the red office and we said, okay, our assets will be, our red hours will go towards Abopa. So we, we split our assets up. Mm. And, and that's uh, the hours became assets. And there's, there's some complications in this. Mm -hmm. um, and was part of the reason we split up. Um, Hector and Kate were of the attitude that we want this ownership to be of property. The, the, the red office has to go as property. And the accountants are saying, if you take that red sweat as property, you need to pay a tax on it right then. So it's like, wow, 40% of a seven, $8 million building, all of a sudden they own 40% of it. They were looking at a huge tax bill. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, that's not the way you do it. The way you do it is you take your sweat equity as ownership of profits. That way each year when you get a profit, you report it and you pay your tax on it, but you never got the asset of the building. Also, when you sell the building at the end, you still get the profit split as it would normally have been and you pay the tax you'd pay the tax at that time so that's the way a cory merliner who was the mred accountant and tax consultant that seems like it's a, so this like is how accounting. you how you do it you have to do it properly you have to take an ownership of profits not not to pay the tax anymore. and i'd actually done it incorrectly through the years because the lloyd died building say 50 50 percent yours 50 percent mine we didn't realize there was a huge tax consequence there <laughs> we would just pay the tax on the income each year. And Corey says, well, that's if you just had your partnership agreement say the right thing, that's what you could have done. Yes, so that's how we did a BOPA. But Hector and Kate, uh, one of the reasons that we kind of split up was that they, they wanted to take ownership of property. And I'm going like, 
I, I you got, got a huge tax you're going to pay. I don't, I don't think I want to be part of that. <laughs> so that was all part of the reason they went. But they I mean, ended up with 40% of ownership of property, but I, I'm, I'm worried about what taxes they're going to pay this year. It's what's the advantage of having the ownership of property, like leveraging what you have, are you borrowing money or like, why would they want to do that? I mean, you're typically, the only way you really leverage a finished project is to refinance it. Right. Uh So you could in your partnership agreement have the rights to the refinance proceeds. um, And that should be in a partnership agreement. You know, you might be able to refinance all your fees back out and pay everybody a fee, right? Or you're you're saying use a building to leverage. People do do that. I don't recommend that you pile up a huge debt on one building to get onto another one. I mean, you, your building's kind of got a limited debt, right? It can only have. I mean, you could put second trustees on it, partnership tiers on it forever, but typically, seventy five percent loan, right? So you're going to put up 25% of the equity and of that 25%, probably half of it is architecture fee, contractor fee, and developer fee. Mm-hmm. So say you got a $10 million building and you need $2.5 million equity, the architecture fee, developer fee, and contractor fee will be half of that. So you still got to raise a million dollars. Mm-hmm. But the, the, uh, the other million becomes sweat equity, and, but not in the ownership of the building in case you don't want the tax hit, you get the other one. Anyway, we're really getting into the weeds, you guys. But this, yeah. this is this is the, the the nuance that you get just by doing it. And again, um, the first thing I recommend to everybody is stop paying your landlord because guys like me don't need your money. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as you can, own something quickly. Right. Don't keep paying that mortgage for somebody else. Yep. <laughs> You're just making people who own the buildings um, money and you should be making money on your own. I mean, you're architects. You should, right. you should, you should basically figure any way you can partner or whatever. A lot of people say, I don't want to partner, you know, partnerships are problems. People get managed. They do. And partnerships are problems. But if you're fair, if you just always are fair and you're always willing to give a little bit of, People don't agree just to kind of go, okay, you're right, whatever. You won't have problems with partners. Um, I, I, uh, through I, every project I've ever done has had partners. So I've never had the money. And, and basically, um, but what you want is control on a deal. So, so say you, so what I used to do back in Del Mar, I'd be like, okay, I, so you can tie up a lot for three months by putting down $5,000. And that you can simply say as a contingency zoning. (laughs) And three months from then, you just go like, I give up. I didn't get a partnership together. I can't close. And and you just use the, you get your $5,000 back. So the most important thing to do is always, is to look real. Because sometimes they won't sell you a property if they think you can't follow through. Don't certainly sell. You got all together. You got the whole thing. Boom, boom. We tie it up. Do your contingency, get the property. Now you're in control. Now you are holding the ticket. Now, when you talk to somebody, you're not, oh, let me have a piece. You are the man, right? And you got control of that property by putting up a small amount of money to to have it be in your control. And you don't have to lose that money if you don't get a gig, if you don't get a partnership together in that 90 days. 
Now in hot real estate markets, you don't get 90 days, but I think going into what is going to be a soft market here shortly, it's got to be <laughs> sometime. I've never seen it go up forever, you guys. So hang on, hold on to your seats. Anyway, just get control. Once you have control, you go, I've got a gig. Here's some plans I've worked on. Looks like it's going to make this much money. Do you got $300,000? I'm going to put up all the time and money. We'll be 50-50 partners. You know, and you're going to do six units somewhere or four units um, <clears throat> that are really 10 or something. The projects that you can do on the 5,000 square foot lots, um, they're already very difficult. The other thing I would suggest to you all, if you're interested um, in doing this, is turn the clock back to 1975 when I started. And how can you do that? You can move to New Zealand. <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> The, prob the problem with trying to start here in, you know, Little Italy or somewhere or North, yeah. it's like, God, the money to play is too big. Yeah. I mean, it's way too big. My first projects, it was like, oh, buy a lot in Del Mar Terrace, even in the 80s, $100,000. Oh, my God, that was a lot of money, but I could put up, find 20 and 10 from you and 10 from me and we'll borrow 80. But now you're going to put up, wow, and going to borrow. So it's, it's the economy is not, it's not uh, symmetrical. You can't, very often in MRED, we'd say, okay, let's just go back and let me do my performa from 1985 and let's try it today. And all of a sudden the numbers are bigger numbers. So the cost of housing and the value of housing has increased way faster than has inflation. So, which of course is why you make money in real estate, but it's, it's, uh, it's also the reason that the entry becomes more and more difficult in high-end. Well, it's also, it's increased faster than wages as well, which is the, the other problem because yeah, sure. It's like, um, yeah, your wages doesn't keep up to the inflation of the asset that you're that you want to purchase that's right at least here in san diego you know because no, true. yeah sure it's like you can move out to the middle of montana but then you're in the middle of montana well exactly and the other thing that's interesting is that we've had uh, once one really good student move to arkansas hmm. deals all over the place and they work mm -hmm. others in texas some in north carolina some uh, some people in some places that you wouldn't think of the appalachian mountains and you kind of go, oh, what could do a retreat with, and you know, it's, it's this thing of trying to play with the big guys in Little Italy. It's like, or downtown San Diego, anywhere, even the fringe, it starts to be really hard. Now there, you know, there's National City, which has got some angles in it still that works. And, you know, it's just, again, National City, what's, what's, what's exciting, what's interesting. And I, I think the problem is that um, everything is, is quite overinflated i worried a bunch when we started seeing people working at home uh, what's going to happen to these urban walkable neighborhoods and i hopefully they'll survive but frankly there's going to be less people on the sidewalk there's going to be less support for the businesses and and people did in fact go buy big houses in the suburbs so they could work for work from home in a nice new third fourth bedroom and you, you saw what happened to the single family market around all the big cities. It went nuts. 
went spike mm. like nothing else as everybody said, oh, I don't, I'm going to buy that house with one more bedroom and set up a really nice office and plan on doing this for, you know, and now they're not coming back. They're saying something like 30, 30% of the office workers are going to stay at home. Mm-hmm. So holy cow, what does that do to our urban walkable reality? It's kind of scary, huh? <laughs> so I, I'm a little worried about the urban real estate anyway. So I would, I, if you guys are looking to get in on it, I would cast my net much further abroad and, and just realize that you're, all these economies are completely um, local. Uh, and, and someplace you think, God, who wants to live there? Okay, well, think about, well, I often talk about what, where do you live when you live in San Diego? Yeah. And what I often would ask people to do, I want you to draw a map of San Diego and I want you to put dots at all your destinations and then draw little lines between the dots. And then that is where you live. You live in that city. You don't live in this other thing called San Diego. You live in the, in the, in the set of your destinations. And I, I remember um, drawing the map of, of uh, my San Diego when I lived in Del Mar. And it involved, it was a huge San Diego. I, I had no problem driving to regional shopping centers all over the freaking city. I had no problem. You know, I was back, back and forth to downtown all the time. And, you know, I had a, I had a pretty big use of San Diego. Once I became pedestrian, you know, um, it's now 1990. Holy cow. That's 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> it, all of a sudden it was, uh, um, my town was just so small. I, I basically would go to where I walk and then go to Kathy's house and that's it. And I'd put like 3000 miles on my car each year. And it's just like, Oh, my car's brand new, but it's, it's 20 years old and it's only got 50,000 miles on it. So I, I just sit there and kind of go like, my, my San Diego is tiny. And all of this is to say that Sandy, do you say, I don't want to live in freaking some silly place somewhere. You'll find a world there. There will be destinations that are just like the destinations that you have now. There'll be a new place. There'll be different costs. Maybe you find a new little place that's happening that you get to get in before it happened already. Um, and that's what I'd suggest because it just seems like the price to buy in now is just so high. It, it, yeah. it, these nice neighborhoods that I can't say, hey, I just did this. No, when I did it, I bought, when I did my first go home, the lot was 100,000, right? I put 20,000 down and um, I could build a box for $10,000. Well, the same performer today is a million dollar lot. Uh, doesn't add up, right? That's <laughs> insane. Doesn't add up. Doesn't it? Doesn't. But maybe in New Zealand, maybe in Australia <laughs> somewhere, maybe in some weird place you never thought about. There's a little micro economy, right? I don't know. Anyway, that's what I would suggest. Other than that, the other one I would suggest is spending a lot of time with your most wealthy relatives. <laughs> Because they're the only person that's going to invest in you when you haven't accomplished anything yet. And I'm the first to admit that my dad co-signed my first construction loan for the house that I lost. And so he, he co-signed my loan. But my dad, you know, he was a Navy guy. He never ha- had any money in the bank. He never bought a house. 
moved every two years, but he had a salary and the banks would lend on that salary. So he co-signed my loan, right? He also introduced me to that first real estate agent I told you about that got me those gigs. So, you know, that was a young officer in the Navy that he had known. And so there was, there's nothing like a silver spoon. And I hate, I hate to, I hate to be admit it, but it's bullshit to, from people tell you they did it all on their own. Um, and a, lot of, a lot of people did. I mean, I'm sorry. You just, it just, people have, and Jonathan's one of them, frankly, he comes from no money and made it all himself. And so just forget what I just said. <laughs> on my, on, on, some people, some people are just, just phenomenal. <laughs> that's, that's all you can say about Jonathan. Yeah. How did he pull that off? And, you know, it's just amazing. He knew when this, he just has been amazing the whole time. I'm always the guy that says, ah, hold on to your building, get a 30 year loan. It'll, you'll have it forever. You don't, it's going to income forever. Just tie down that mortgage. Don't worry about a 10 year refi and all this. Jonathan says all the money's made in refi. The money is not made building the architecture. It's made in the refinance and the sale. And so if you're not willing to sell your buildings, then you're just going to have a lot of old buildings. And, and I remember telling you that 20 years ago. And now I'm sitting there with a lot of old fucking buildings. And they cost a lot of money to keep them in order. <laughs> and Jonathan just sold all his, sold two of his wonderful new, brand new concrete buildings and just boom, and turned into cash in the bank. And what's he going to get to do? Now he gets to build his 20-story high-rise. So he's, he's uh, he, a different, different attitude on everything, you know? Um, Mike's another one who's made a lot of money pretty much all on his own. Mm -hmm. um, but I had uh, my first clients, um, first, first lending co-signature. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it, you can't sit there and say you can do it yourself. It's just the world is not a fair place. There's nothing level and fair about it anywhere. So True. it's all about who, you know, um, and that relationship with that real estate agent that I got early on in my career, that was the best relationship that I ever did for um, my career because he basically was pipeline to work and, and he, uh, you know, somebody like that, you know, you tend to want to hang out with your art, art friends and your music friends and stuff. Cultivate some business type friends, real estate mm -hmm. agents. They're in the middle of transactions every day and they're going to get you a gig. If it's a remodel, whatever it is, a, a partnership, um, whatever it is. So it's, it's all about this person you get to know, these people you get to know. I mean, um, that's not all it is, but that's, that's a big piece of it. And, and you, I, I hope you all can take that seriously. I know it's, it's an ugly thing to hear, but the reality yeah. is it's the, it's what you're dealing with. You, you talked, you talked about, uh, yeah, you talk about relationships and sort of how you guys build this community with MRED and having sharing stuff. And, and it seems like it's really hard to build a network like that without having the foundation of like an MRED, like, for example, you know, like we like getting out there and like, how do you build that? And like, even if it's such a small city like San Diego with, with other architects, we're willing to share, frankly, because we've encountered people who are not willing to share or are not willing to be open about that kind of stuff. 
Well, um, it seems like you're somewhat in the MRED community now. Yeah, I mean, you get in, you get the invites from Pedro and whatnot for the openings, mm-hmm. and so that's a community of people right there. But again, that's not the people I'm talking about. Those are all competitors. What you're looking for is you you know go to the ULI conferences and get to know mm-hmm. some people that are um, in the same industry but are not architects. Uh, you know, go be a member of community group. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I to say it, but be the good guy in the community group and you're going to meet people. It's all about networking, right? You're going to yep. meet somebody with some money who trusts you. Meanwhile, don't sit at home. If you don't have a gig, draw some beautiful freaking things for your portfolio. I mean, it's, it's hard to draw something that isn't real. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's a, well, you could get into the ADU thing and make some projects that go everywhere that fit everywhere. But I mean, you know, it's uh, have that portfolio ready and continue to exercise your design talents. Because the other thing that happens to architects is they fall away from that. Mm-hmm. And before long, I know nobody makes a physical model anymore. But there's something to be learned in those things. Right. And, and frankly, I don't anymore, hardly. Uh, why would I when you can do SketchUp so freaking fast? Except it isn't three-dimensional. When you pick up a chunk of wood that you've chopped off into a block and you stack it and then the block gets bumped and you bump into the table and the blocks move a little bit and all of a sudden you go, damn, look at that. And the shape of the pile of blocks all of a sudden took on some beautiful something. Or you have one block that's made out of a beautiful piece of mahogany, another one that's mm-hmm. poor stone, and another one, something else. And you shove them around and you, you know, the, the physical thing talks to you, right? Because the hardest thing always when you're designing stuff is deciding whether you've done anything decent. Right? It's hard to know you. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You don't know. And you just keep rubbing it, keep rubbing it, you know. <laughs> and Kathy, Kathy says, you haven't rubbed that long enough, Ted. I say, hey, what do you think of this? And she says, well, I think you probably ought to rub that a little bit. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> nice way <to laughs> it's not good yet, right? And so, <laughs> so you got to have that. Um, you got to keep that ability up. And whether if you're just painting or whether you're drawing or whether you're writing, what did Corbusier do every day? He wrote for a third of the day, did architecture for a third, and he painted for a third of the day. Mm. Now, if you know, you sit there and go, damn, that guy, man, he's, (laughs) I always look at that and go, wow, if I could only make one building somewhere near like one of those buildings, you know? And you go, how did he do that? And, you know, his was a big political international writing career. I'm not suggesting that that's something you should do. But what I am suggesting is the the discipline, the discipline of getting up, especially through these bullshit times, Mm -hmm. get up and set yourself. It's morning. I'm painting. It's morning. I'm writing. It's morning. I'm scouring the real estate pages. It's morning. I'm figuring out which ULA conference I can go to, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but you set, but you set up your your routine that continues to include the artful endeavor that got you into this profession in the first place. 
because that's why you all did it, right? You all yeah. love buildings, right? That's in the end. That's that's what we get is the building. Uh, the money you forget about afterwards. I mean, it's nice not to think every gig, you every dollar you make is going to be spent. It's nice to know you get a steady income from apartment buildings. It gives you the ability to to pursue all sorts of different things. But just just don't, it's so easy to get separated from that college education and, and to be out in the real world and, oh yeah, we don't make models. We don't do that. We, would you just draw this for me, please, or whatever. Why do you think that happens? Is it like, because I, I know what you mean, but is it because that we just get caught up in like the work, you know, the like nine to five work and just like focusing on all the minutia of well i think you're right if you're out trying to make a living it's going to take you 40 hours a week easy you're young enough that you can easily work 60 hours a week so um you've got to work the 40 to make the money so that you can do the real work for 20 hours at the end of the day or 20 hours before the day, you know, in the morning. Mm-hmm. I remember I had one college guy that he would get up and paint at four in the morning when the first classes were at nine. And he had set that routine up and he did it all the way through college. Oh my God, that guy can paint. And he would write, he just did the Corbusian thing. He also a funny guy. He said, I'm going to have one fork. That's the best fork in the world. And I'm going to have one plate. That's the best plate, but I'm not, I'm only going to have one. (laughs) (laughs) He was a really cool guy. I mean, but he disciplined himself in a way that that really showed. I've seen musicians do that too. And where they actually do put in the time three or four hours a day playing that it's like, guess what? You've got to work. It doesn't happen to you. And the art comes from the massage of doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Even if the art is performer making, Mm -hmm. which I consider a certain art, um, it's from doing it over and over and over and over. So uh, I don't know how to set up a situation, but you ought, to, you ought to be scouring the real estate pages. You find a property, you do the zoning check, and you bang out a building by the end of the day. Hmm. And get so you can do that. One, two or three, you know. And then you draw on a building each time, and you're exercising, and it's sort of real. Maybe you'll get a friend to help you. And, and then, okay, I've got five grand. I'm going to go try tie that one up. And you tie hmm. it up. And then you can mess with it for three, two or three months while you're trying to make it real. And it's not just sitting in your home going, I think I'll elaborate on fenestration with drawings or something. No, it has to be real or you don't have any, it's no fun to do, right? It's like skin in the game too. Yeah, but at the same time, it has to be real. Paintings don't have to be real. And, and I think you learn just as much doing a painting as you do doing a building about making housing, right? I mean, in the end, humans are what you're dealing with, not not so much the concrete. So it's, which has always been the other thing that I've most enjoyed about doing the go-homes is that you're building a culture. You're not building apartments. You're, you're building a life. I mean, the people that, you know, I've lived in all of them through the years, like when we build a new one, I'd move into that one. And, and the cultures will always be different. And the, 
the whole thing would always be different, but it, it was that scene that you're making is, is the most exciting part about it. You're, and, and again, the other thing I, I can say, I'm always doing a building for myself, which is hugely different. So you're always trying to figure out, well, how can I, I get a little room up on the top if I can talk this guy into building this or something, something's in it for you that's more than money. Say, I'm going to get a unit out of it. You go, look, I, you don't have to pay me, but you know, pay me $50 an hour. We'll get through this whole thing. I'll get it done. And then you're going to give me a $250 a month rent on that little unit I crammed in on the bottom that you weren't even going to have. <laughs> That's a go home of something. You weren't even going to have it before, right? And somehow pay yourself with housing. Now you're in the game. Get a unit out of something. Get a, uh, or a reduced rent somewhere. Um, build yourself towards having a little freedom and do it that way. But yeah, so it's, I don't know, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, you guys. And, and, and I, I swear it's not, it's not easy. And it's, when you see the rents that are coming out of these buildings downtown San Diego, you go, holy cow. No wonder, no wonder all the, the, the sharks are here you know the, the big money the reits and they can outbid you on everything it's like okay i'm try to compete in the 40 unit area and even the big guys are even down they consider those little projects but they they're even in those now so you're just going like oh god can't even get a you know two thousand you know twenty thousand square feet or something um go look out further out man People are going to be looking further out. Try to figure out what would what, where the where's the trend going to be. People working at home, right? Make the perfect work at home, go home house, <laughs> apartment, and a single family lot. Screw going out and fighting for all these little apartment lots. There's too much competition. Prices are too high. Do the single family residence. When I built when I built the first go home, what was I doing? I was building a house for myself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got a $10,000 box too. <laughs> and that's what made it exciting. And then of course, who's the con who's the framer? Who's the guy doing the tile work? Well, I am different kind of sweat equity. But the other thing is there's nothing like touching your building, building it yourself, laying the masonry. Now you do a day where you lay block and the end of the day is hot and you sit down and lean against that cold block. There's not a better feeling. Is that how you work uh, still? Like, are you the contractor of your own buildings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we built a BOPA. I'm no longer the mason or the tile setter or the <laughs> right. drywaller or the cabinet builder or the finished carpenter, which I always was in the early years. Wow. Just because no one could do it as cheap as me and we're, you know, we're all going to do it, and all the people who would buy a go home would all build it together. We'd all strap on our belts and go out and build the house. Right. And there's not, I mean, this is such a fun thing to do. And guess what? That's where the money is, too. When you get into development, the contractor's where the money is. Mm -hmm. um, the resale's where the money is, but the contractor, as far as the development of the project, is the person with the most power and the most income. I see. Um, so, you know, you can, you can trump up the value of your architecture and get it higher, 
Um, but generally, if you can be the general contractor, and that's, that's what everybody says. And the way you do it is you say, look, those guys charge way too much. Yeah. And the, every subcontractor marks up his subtrade 20%, right? And then the general contractor takes all those 20%, which add up to a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he multiplies times that 20%, his 15%. And then he buries a bunch of bullshit general condition stuff, which he really didn't have to pay for. And I, I was just looking at the performa that the guy that bought the barrio on the other day he had 22% in the general contractor line. Mm. I was going, holy shit, 22% for what? You mean after you got all the gigs together and all you're doing is paying the bills and scheduling and making sure that people show up? Because once you've bid it, you're done, right? I mean, you're not, but <laughs> you've got yeah. the day, day of it. But I think general contractors make way too much money. And you, you, should, you can always try to talk your client to letting you be a general contractor, but better yet, let your client let you get a cheap rent on one of the units. Because it's the sustaining income that matters. The other income just seems to evaporate. I mean, yeah. whatever, money, whatever money you have in hand is just going to be gone, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you say, oh, there's going to be 500. I remember when I was first doing it, I, and Peter's paying 400 bucks, and then Tom built the next one. And so he's paying for it. I'm going, bam, my mortgage is paid. And then I built another one. That 400 bucks is mine. Then I'd go like, how long is that 400 bucks mine? I say, forever. Oh, nice. I just made 400 bucks forever. I like that. And then, so that's where my 30 year whole concept comes from is every time you build one, you got another 400 bucks <laughs> forever, you know? And that's a, it's a nice way to, uh, it's a really nice way to be an architect because you're not sweating that fee, which is just deadly. I, yeah. It's just horrible. What happens if they sell that building in that case? Which one? Like where you get that $400 for, uh, for the unit, what, do you still get your 400? For... No. We sell the building. First of all, I don't sell any buildings. <laughs> I, I'd be rich like Jonathan if I did, yeah. but I, and, and I wouldn't have the deal with all these old buildings that I'm dealing with now. How many buildings do you got? Oh, I don't see. What do we have? We have still have three in Del Mar of the go home. So I one of those, I own all of it now because I continue to buy all the partners out the original one because I just own it all of it now. Robin Brisbois and I own Via Felino, and uh, and then we own the other one up there too. So there's three there. Then there's the um, downtown. I've just got Ninth and Beach, Merrimack, Essex, Abopa, Kathy's house. I've counted it up once. I think it's about of the percentage ownership of mine. I think I have like 50, 50 units that are mine. So, you know, it's, just piles up, man. You got to live 40 years doing it. Yeah. But, that's but again, nice. that's the attitude. It just piles up. You get, I remember getting the first one done and said, I had $400 a month forever. I was going, holy cow, if I can get three more of those, maybe I can put my kid in college. And then the best thing <laughs> in the world happened. My kid decides to be a rock, rock and roll star and doesn't go to college. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sitting there kind of going, great. This is terrific. <laughs> Anyway, so I see some guitars on the wall back there, too. You know, my son's band, Pinback. I don't know if you know those guys. Check no, out, I haven't heard. I'll check have to out, check out. out Pinback, P-I-N-B-A-C-K. P 
pinback named after something on Star Wars or something. Well, anyway, it's a uh, um, check out that band, man. They're they're really good, and uh, they they played on um, Jimmy Fallon about two years ago. Oh wow! And that was sort of the peak of their expanding growth, and then the two partners that owned the band got in fight. <laughs> <laughs> but they still make they still make really great music and uh so anyway yeah check out pinback and and zach talk talk about um i see you know they have the interest in music it's but it's very parallel you have to work and work and work and work and the chances of making much money on it are pretty small but the effort doesn't matter because the effort's where the reward is yeah so. Yeah, no, I mean, just the just the music scene just going out and you look at all these great bands and you just wonder why are they not big? Um, it's just there's so much talent out there. It's just it's impossible. There's so uh, much. Oh, my God. It's so much. And the, the tools they have now and yeah. the lack of a need for a studio and all this stuff. And the God, the amazing um, tracks that can be made in home studios now. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so back in them, used, they used to have a Geffen. Years ago, they were a three-mile pilot, and they had a Geffen recording um, contract. And so they'd give them the front money for that. They'd give them you know, money. Then I'd say, give them front money. Then they say, you have to hire my producer. We have to do it in my studio. You have to pay my engineer, my blah, blah, blah. And by the time that their front money was spent out and they'd done everything supporting this, the producer's people, and then they hope to get royalties at the end, which of course never happened. So it's always just right. it's always just the front money if you're an indie band like they are. You know, they're not playing that stuff that makes a lot of money. Right. But they, you know, but they, but they, they finally after years, and so they would they would get uh, royalties from Geffen for years, and then that stopped. And then of course iTunes happened. And then, of course, did nobody makes anything anymore. So my 40 year old son all of a sudden is back in the fucking van driving all over the country because concerts are the only way to make money because yeah. he wouldn't get royalties <laughs> anymore selling merch and doing concerts. Yeah. So you can only go to those thousand people venues mm -hmm. once a year. You can't fill them up every time. So you got to get in the freaking bus and drive all over the world. So it's like, so now, of course, he's completely shut down, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a tough way to make a living, man. And it used to be that you could get a gig and get some, some money. And now it's, now it's get on the bus and go tour. Or you don't make any money. Yep. Yep. It's not what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway that, but it sure is fun playing music so anyway it's we've always had as part of the go homes there's always been a music room and we've had a 40-year continuing jam session with all my architect friends who are hobby musicians right <laughs> and uh, well, you know yeah what do you play to you play a, a oh i play guitar and drum mm -hmm. piano a little bit but i but i don't really play any of them because i don't really practice i just noodle <laughs> so I, I could play just as good 40 years ago <laughs> but so it's for me it's more been a party but for for a long time we had a tuesday and thursday night open jam session over here and there'd be who knows what, who would be here we'd have 10 people and it it went for 40 years until COVID. so it stopped wow. this last march and i'm like holy cow what happened to the jam sessions half my life is missing <laughs> I, no, I no longer i no longer have the jams and you know we'd go to dinner and we'd 
get good and drunk and come back and party and come back around, look in the studio and see if any of the good looking girls had shown up to sing. <laughs> <laughs> and just, wow, this is going to be fun tonight, you know, and then whatever would happen. But now it's just like, it's Tuesday. So what? Uh, and so lately we've been, there's this bullshit thing called jam Kazam, which is like zoom jams. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so you can sit there and try to play with this latency over the, over the internet with your buddies. Yeah. It's like, Okay. Uh, yeah. Somehow, I guess it was getting drunk and having a party was what was fun. <laughs> I don't want to sit here with it, trying to hear that you know play on the other way. But anyway, we're getting way off topic here, you guys. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, maybe this is a good spot to end the podcast. Um, thanks a lot, Ted. Thank you for sharing your story with us, and we hope to talk soon. Well, I appreciate you guys being in touch with me and i think it's a wonderful service and again it's the kind of thing that will build a career if you have a like what you're doing in other words you have to do something else you have yeah to, you have to kind of and this this is great you know as uh, talk to there's so many people to talk to and put it all together and yeah well thank you ted for um taking the time for this and uh, yeah thanks all right shaping logics thank you guys <laughs> thank you <Thanks. laughs> appreciate it have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Have a nice day. Cheers. Bye.